Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I think that a lot of the reasons why Christianity has fallen away, particularly among the educated people, is that people can't swallow this literalism. You know, it's obvious that a book begins with a talking snake is not history. History. The Medicine Path Podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicinepath or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. This is part two of my conversation with David Tacey. In part one, we spoke at length about his time in analysis with famed post-Jungian writer James Hillman, and we talked about David's critique and praise of Hillman's psychology. In this second half, we get into a discussion around Jung and religion, David's book Religion is Metaphor, and the limitations of both Jungian psychology and religious literalism. In the end, our conversation digresses into some good old-fashioned gossip, and David lets rip on misogyny in depth psychology and why Jordan Peterson pisses him off so much. Now please, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with David Tacey on The Medicine Path. Now, one of the things that stands out to me is that books based on Hillman's work sell well and books based on religion don't sell well. Now, let me give you two examples. Tom Moore and myself. Tom Moore, when Tom Moore went back to explore religion, he lost a huge amount of his following. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many books did Care of the Soul sell? It was over a million, wasn't it? Yeah. I think 1.6 million or something extraordinary. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for months. 
He was on Oprah as well. Yeah. Now, when Tom went back to religion, his his readership fell right away. And I think he had all sorts of troubles about his publishing career. Um, um, the, 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 the soul's religion didn't sell very well. Oh, and, do you mean um, religion of one's own? Yeah. Yeah. Religion of one's own. Yeah, that's right. And um, in fact, this isn't personal, so I can say it publicly. He wrote me a letter and he said he was really disappointed that his, his new stuff's not selling as well as his old stuff. And I said, tell me about it, Tom, because when I came back to Australia from working with Hillman, um, I decided to write a Hillman-style book about Australian culture, which I called uh, Edge of the Sacred. And it was a bestseller. It, it just astonished me. It, it got on bestseller lists. I mean, I was on television. You know, it was like America had come to Australia. I, I couldn't believe my luck. I, well, then I wrote the men's book. And, of course, men in Australia were very enthused by Robert Bly not bought by me, um, and they didn't like it. So the, my men's book sank like a stone. Um, and then after the men's book, which was 1997, I returned to religion, and my readership fell right off. And I started to reclaim Christianity, to try and reread Christianity. <clears throat> In fact, one of my latest books, it was called Religion as Metaphor. I wanted to call it Religion as Myth, but the American publisher said, you're not going to call it that because that'll be read as a rubbishing of religion by Americans because of the negative relation we have to the word myth. So it was really... Um, a book which should have been called Religion as Myth, but because of this fight with the American publisher, um, I had to call it Religion as Metaphor, which doesn't have as much bite to it. I don't think it's sold very well. So I said to Tom, I'm in the same boat. When I write in Hillman's style, my works sell tens of thousands, which is big in Australia, you know, Australia's population is less than the population of California. Mm -hmm. um, we're a tiny country population-wise, but we're as big as USA in terms of the landmass. So that the popular readership is in a Hillman mood. It's not in a reclaiming Christianity mood at all. And so that's a, a big problem that both, both Tom and I have faced, I think, that... Um, that the, the popular following that we once had falls away. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I was invited on television. I mean, it's so long ago, more than 20 years, I think, um, because I'm now regarded as too religious. Yeah. I have a feeling that things are changing. I think... Uh... 
you know, because of people like Jordan Peterson, you know, think what yeah. you will about the way that he frames Christianity and the way he uh, dissects it and all that. You know, I have my own issues with that. But he has uh, been part of this resurgence of interest in Christianity mm. in in North America and I think Europe, um, which is interesting to me. But what I'm seeing, like kind of ground level, taking notice of this, is that it's it's a return to uh, religious literalism, which is what you're speaking about. The you know the problem with that in the book Religion is Metaphor. Mm. Yeah, the the whole book is about is an attack on literalism. Yeah, um, and it was um, the front the front cover has a quote from a I can't even find the bloody thing. The um, the front cover has a quote from a Canadian uh, John Dooley uh, from uh, Carleton University. Is it Ottawa? I think. Oh, yeah, isn't he uh, like a Jungian pastor or something yeah, like that? Yeah, he's a Catholic. He's passed on now. Hmm. Poor John. He's a Catholic priest. Um, like me, a very strong critic of Catholicism. And um, he wrote a, a comment for the cover of my book. Um, it said something about this This book is trying to trying to save religion from itself from its own literalism something like that um i i think that a lot of the reason why christianity has fallen away particularly among the educated people in north america um europe of course especially britain and here in australia and also new zealand is that people can't swallow this literalism you know, it's obvious that a book be begins with a talking snake is not history. You know, <laughs> the snake says to Eve, take this apple, uh, you won't die. In fact, your eyes will be open. You know, I mean, my God, you know, isn't it obvious? Like, duh, you know, of course it's about bloody myth and, lit and, and, and metaphor and symbol. And therefore, it, the whole thing is ripe for a Jungian reading. And... Um, so in my book, Religion and Metaphor, I try and attack the literalism religion of religion. But the book hasn't sold well. I mean, it's, it's met with a very mixed, downbeat response. Mm. Um, and I think the reason is two reasons. One, intelligentsia like me, a university professor, they're not interested in... Christianity anymore, and they don't want to even read a book which tries to revision Christianity in a non-literal vein because they've lost all interest in it. And the Christians who might want to read books about Christianity don't want to read that the whole thing has to be de-literalized um, and read as myth rather than history. So I, I feel like I, my book falls between those two stools um, the intelligentsia that are just over Christianity and the popular Christian audience who don't want it see see it critiqued. Well, you know, I'm in the demographic that finds the book really helpful. And uh, 
So I'm a lay person, I suppose. Uh, grew up in a secular family, but, you know, Christian heritage. Uh, and so it's kind of in my DNA, this Christianity. And once you start thinking about a spiritual life, I think for me, you have to, you have to reckon with Christianity at some point, if you're going to be like honest and authentic about it. And so what's the way in, you know, I go to a church and I don't see a whole lot happening there that interests me. Um, but the images that come up are so evocative to me, uh, kind of inexplicably, you know, why do I have this emotional relationship when I see Christ in the sacred heart? I don't know, but I want to investigate the power of that image. And the only way to do it, um, that I've found is through Jung. Like Jung for me is the bridge between what I think of as my mythic mind and my modern mind. You know, the mm. mythic mind is the, oh, the mind that where I experience mystical experiences and the psychedelics yeah. and mm. yogic experiences and all of that. But I don't, I can't live just in that mythic mind, you know, because I, no. I know about psychology and we've had Joseph Campbell come along and show the similarity of all the world religions. So mm. there's no going back to that. And the only way forward for me was a bridge of those two minds or two worlds views and Jung was the guy for me. <laughs> That's so good. I like, I like that very much. The modern mind and the mythic mind, you and I are quite similar. I've always wrestled between these two minds, you know, but the mind that was, I don't even call myself professor anymore because it, it puts me in the modern mind. I don't want to be in the modern mind. My anima, or the anima, as Hillman would prefer to say, wants me to be in the mythic mind. And that's the poetic mind. That's my creative side, my musical side. I'm a yeah, music I think, you, I think you, you should just be an elder, you know? Yeah, but I think um, my parish priest read my book on religion, <clears throat> and he really enjoyed it, and I... I found that astonishing. But he, we had the coffee uh, over it, and he said, David, I thought Jesus was special. Because in the book, I argue that Jesus is a symbol of the self, and that um, just as Jesus is important for Christian, Buddha is important for Buddhists, and uh, Muhammad is crucially important for Islam, and so on. And I don't think that, I've never felt that Jesus is the exclusive one and only son of God. You know, that's a, mm. It's a great myth. It's a great story. And it's not an historical fact, as the Christian people pretend. And my, my priest cl clearly felt quite challenged by that because Catholic priest, you know, he'd spent his whole life telling other people that Jesus is special the one and only Son of God. You know. That's what it says in the Apostles' Creed, which um, all Catholics recite every Sunday. Um, I never believed it. So when we were supposed to read the Apostles' Creed, I would stay silent as a protest. But look, I didn't, I didn't want that to crush my religious life. I loved the, um, the Eucharist 
which unlike Protestants, uh, we celebrate the Eucharist in the, in the Mass every week. And uh, I know the, the Protestants don't do that, apparently. But um, I thought, well, I'm not going to allow intellectual problems to stuff up my religious life. So there's enough of my mythic mind that is still pleased by Christian ritual, sacrament, you know, and the, and the mass. As Jung famously said, and he said this to an audience in London in an essay called The Symbolic Life, he said, he said, part of me wants to be a Catholic, but part of me would love to be a Catholic, um, but I can't. It's, it's not, not what I'm here to do. And I read that as him saying that, that his mythic mind was attracted to Catholicism. Sure was. Look at all the essays on the Catholic Church, the transubstantiation of the Mass, the essays on the Trinity, the essays on, um, you know, all dogmas to do with Christianity, mainly Catholic. Um, and, of course, Father Victor White, who was a Dominican friar from Oxford in the UK, took a strong interest in York for many years. I think it was 25 years. They saw each other, talked about the relationship between psychology and religion. Jung found this exciting because, as you know, Jung's background was Protestant. And so it was very important for Jung to get Catholics interested in his work. But then when Jung wrote Answer to Job, I think, what was it, 1951 or something like that, that terminated his relationship with Father White. Um, I don't know if you've seen in Canada, but I've seen it several times in Switzerland, a, a dramatic a presentation called The White Jung Letters. Have you seen mm. it? No. Oh, it's fantastic. I've seen it two or three times each time in Zurich. Um, and um, it, it's a dramatization of this relationship between Jung and Victor uh, White. And, it was to me. It was like psychodrama. You know, the two sides of my brain hmm. having an argument with each other, and of course, tragically, really, both of them they separated. They couldn't reconcile their differences. Um, Father Victor White went off, basically betrayed Jung. But Jung was all, already in a mood which was like, go. You know, like Jung was sort of like. He's done with them. Yeah, your diamond was very strong. You know, he wasn't willing to conform to Christian dogmas and doctrines. Um, and Answer to Job was the book that terminated his relationship with Christians. And that's why, if I can make another comment, which could be perceived as anti-American, the uh, American Jungians domesticate Jung far too much. Um, thinking of, of that whole group uh, of write books on Jung, John Sanford, Morton Kelsey, Wallace Clift. Uh, Murray Stein. Hey? Murray Stein. 
No, not that I wouldn't kind of include Murray Stein in that category. No, mm. Murray Stein's different. Murray Stein, his book called Jung's Treatment of Christianity is quite a special book. And Murray Stein has the courage to come out and say, look, Jung's following a different faith. Mm. But the other people I mentioned, especially uh, John Sanford and Morton Kelsey, and some of the other people kind of papered over uh, Jung's um, quarrel with Christianity. Uh, even this new book, which I like, called Religion, Religious But Not Religious, by a fellow in Boston. What's his name? Uh, Jason Smith, yeah. Yes, Jason Smith. Uh, I read that book with great interest. But I think essentially he's wrong. And if you want sparks to fly, get Jason Smith on your iPod, your iPodcast, and let's have a, a debate about it. Because mm. I think he's far too soft. Jung was a strong critic of Christianity. He didn't say, we want Christian ritual at any price. In fact, in his essay, the archetypes of the collective unconscious. Jung says, if we can't find ourselves at, at home in Christianity, let's just accept our hollowness and our lack of um, heritage. The fact that the, the cup is broken, Jung says. Uh, you know, the cup is broken. He was referring to the Holy Grail. Mm -hmm. And I think Jung, look, Jung is terrific. Terrific courage. He loved Christianity. Of course, like all of us, he had a great father complex as well. He, he kind of despised his father, actually, and particularly after his um, induction, formal induction into the church, um, where he, he says in his memoirs, nothing happened. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, he was Nothing so disappointed happened. even as a boy. Yeah, even mm -hmm. as a 12, 13-year-old, his God was shitting on the, the church in, in Basel. You know, I mean, that's... And the Freudians had a field day with that, of course. Aggression. We continue to hate Jung, write about that with great relish that Jung's God shat on his father's church. They refer to it as anal aggressivity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <And> Freudians, <laughs> the Freudians love it. Um, but the Jungians have a very different reading of that uh, daytime vision of, of, uh, of Jung's. They see it as that there's a new revelation at hand. Edward Edinger, for instance, is a very sensitive reader of Jung and Christianity unlike the other ones I mentioned. And John Dooley in Canada, very sensitive reader of Jungian Christianity. So I read all this stuff, obviously. Sometimes I read it over and over again to try and figure out who's right and who's wrong. Mm -hmm. I think Murray Stein is right. I think John Dooley is right. And I feel personally that Edward Edinger is right that Jung, in fact, is announcing a new kind of religion. Yeah. 
not 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 that Jung himself is the religion. I think that's complete nonsense. But I think Jung is a prophet of a new kind of religion, which is going to be heavily based on Christianity, but also strongly drawing from Buddhism as well, which Jung referred to as the, the world's two greatest religions. Right, because of the emphasis on um, direct experience? Yes. Mm -hmm. The Christianity, this is why it's failing in my view. It doesn't emphasize direct experience of God. In fact, as Jung correctly put it, Christianity erects walls against direct experience, you know, walls of dogma, walls of doctrine, so that people don't get, you know, ignited by the living God. Because Jung felt that the contact with the living God is a very dangerous thing and that many people aren't able to survive that contact because it would just, they would just burst into flames. Annie Dillard says that in her book, what was it called? Like teaching a stone to talk and all these types mm. of things. She says that people sitting in church should wear safety helmets in case the Holy Spirit really descends on them and breaks their skull open. <laughs> I can really relate to Annie Dillard on Christianity. Um, <clears throat> and um, Jung thought that, as you know, Jung was very ambivalent about Christianity. On the one hand, it tried to give people an experience of God, but on the other hand, it actually tried to not give people an experience of God. So his view of Christianity is very paradoxical and indeed quite contradictory. And um, I think toward the end of his life, Jung didn't come back into the Christian fold at all. He was far too fascinated by alchemy. Mm. Uh, he got seduced by alchemy. And all of his last works, like Mysterium, Conjunctionis, um, Psychology and Alchemy, that long essay on the transference, you know, they've left Christianity behind and they've taken on board Gnosis, Gnosticism, um, and taken them very seriously. Christians today still regard Gnosticism uh, very negatively, partly because of its emphasis on immediate experience, which, of course, that kind of immediate experience undercuts the authority of the churches. So Catholics don't like Jung's emphasis on direct experience, but some Christian churches do, like the Quakers, for instance, you know, mm -hmm. which you could argue is the original Christian mysticism in an institution. And some of those churches actually love Jung. I, I'm amazed that I haven't become a Quaker. Um, I've thought about going to the one of the House of Friends more yeah. than once. Yeah, the only time I've been in one was to go to a Sufi dance. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think Christians, Jungian Christians, in America, have a lot to answer for. They're selling Jung short. They're selling Jung short. Jung isn't ultimately a Christian. 
he wrestled with Christian in the way that Jacob wrestled with the angel of God by the, by the river. Jung wrestled with Christianity, but did he embrace it? No, I don't think so. But no. on the other hand, something that I, I hear said is that um, psychology was meant to be a replacement for the religions that were no longer functioning for the culture. And I don't Who's think that's, that? I don't think Jung thought that. No, no, that's not Jung's view at all. Who said that? It's something that you hear, you know, like a friend of mine remarked um, after he'd done his uh, therapy training that uh, Jung was his religion. And um, I think that's a sentiment that a lot of people share that the archetypal psychology is a, is a kind of religious uh, format or something, you know. I think they're mistaking the wood for the trees. Um, I don't agree with that. I think Jung is a bridge into religion, but Jung isn't a religion. I mean, he'd be the first one to say that uh, he's not replacing religion. He's trying to help people understand religion. Mm -hmm. And constantly he tried to encourage Christians to go back to Christianity, which is a bit ironic because he didn't, mm -hmm. you know. But I think he had this kind of hygienic view of the whole process of the clinical practice. It was hygienic. He would tell a Jew to go back to Judaism. You know, he would tell uh, a Muslim to go back to Islam. <coughs> But um, I think the Richard Knoll book, you know, The Young Cult, is complete nonsense from beginning to end, as was his follow-up book, The Aryan Christ. I tell you what, if you want sparks to fly, put me on with Richard Knoll. I'll tear him to shreds. Um, I think he's a, is he at Harvard or something like that. But... Um, if you want an Australian professor to attack an American professor, um, you're on. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Um you know, one of the questions that was on my mind coming into this conversation was, um, you know, Jung had this idea that a new religion was coming and it may take, you know, five or 600 years for it to, to form. Yeah. Um, 
Would, do you have any sense of what's happening? Because one of the things I appreciate about your writing and your lectures is that you really have kept your finger on the pulse of the spirit of the times, like staying in contact with young people and asking them about their spiritual life and proclivities. Yeah. And so I think uh, you're uniquely situated to maybe suggest what might be coming. Well, the Red Book is all about the way that is to come. You know, there's a section in the Red Book called the, the way of the future or the, the way that it is to come. Now, that comment that he made about five or six hundred years, that was to that Los Angeles Jungian analyst. Forgotten his name now. Originally from Berlin. Um, and uh, Jung says that the new church is being built already. Mm -hmm. It says it's, it's going to take 600 years. Um, they're building it in China. They're building it in Russia. They're building it in North America. Interestingly enough, he never mentions poor old Australia in any of his... Or Canada stuff. either. Jeez. No, exactly. Canada and Australia. Canadians... We don't, have, we don't have much of a personality anyway. We usually <laughs> just follow along with whatever the Americans are doing. Exactly. Canada and Australia are in a similar boat. <laughs> so keep us out of it, you know. We'll... <laughs> and we don't Jung want to be in the vanguard that, of anything. <laughs> Jung says that the temple of the future mm -hmm. is, is being built already. I, I think he's right. I think there is a new religion coming. Um, I don't think that I can yet understand what it is, but it's got to be draw hugely on Buddhism. Start. I, I look. I think it has to be eclectic. Yeah. At this stage, at the in postmodernism, it has to be eclectic, and it has to allow yeah. for uh, yeah. people to connect to different um, different forms of God. And that's why the American Jungian Christians give me the, the shivers you know, because they're on the wrong track. Mm -hmm. Jung. Jung did say over and over again that Buddhism is one of the world's greatest religions. He did say Buddhism had depth psychology before it was even invented in the West. You know, yeah, the thing, uh, yeah, the thing that irks me, you know, as someone who studied yoga, uh, around the same time as the Buddha, there was Patanjali in India yes. who wrote the Yoga Sutra. And Jung, I don't think, has ever commented on the Yoga Sutra. Like, he's commented on Kundalini Yoga, like the, the Tantric Yoga, because that was probably more kind of exciting to him. But if you read the Yoga Sutra, I mean, it is an incredible psychology. Incredible psychology before psychology was invented. I think this is a bit of synchronicity. A car has just pulled into my driveway with huge letters along the side saying alchemy <laughs> <laughs> there's young young's pulling up in the driveway Young's <laughs> pulled up and he's we have a business here called alchemy he's leaving a parcel at my door so I, I need to get the alchemical message that's what synchronicity is telling me at the moment but i when i was a university student i'm 70 now so you know it's it a long while ago 50 years ago most of my uh, colleagues, peers, 
were, had abandoned Christianity to, uh, to enter Buddhism. So you've got to realize that Australia is actually in Asia. It's not like America, which is stuck right over the other side of the Pacific. We are hugely influenced by Asia. I looked up the other day, how many Chinese are there in the city of Melbourne where I live? Half a million Chinese live in my city alone, let alone Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide, etc. We are hugely influenced by Asia in more ways than one. And um, I think that Jung cautioning, saying Westerners should remain Western, read, they should read the East but not become followers of Buddhism and Hinduism and so on. Taoism in particular, which is very strong with the Chinese here in my city, that is very dated, as you intimated before. That's Jung speaking uh, as an, a pre-postmodernist. You know, you can't say that anymore. Australia, which is largely a European culture, living at the foot of Asia, is going to be hugely influenced by Asian religions, especially Buddhism. Mm. There's a little bit of Hinduism here, but well, Hinduism isn't as attractive as Buddhism. And Taoism is probably more attractive than well, any. <laughs> Hinduism's too messy. <laughs> but, uh, Hinduism is still hundreds of gods. Yeah. Well, See? something just popped up actually as, as you're talking. Alchemy. Um, what can we learn from these different world religions without co-opting them? Well, mm. Hinduism can teach us about polytheism. Yeah. Uh, Buddhism can teach us about internal practices, mm. perhaps. Um, uh, Islam can teach us maybe about regular daily ritual, like incorporating your religious practice into your everyday life, you know? Mm. Um I don't know. That that's kind of an interesting idea that it's never come to me before. That we can learn about mm. the new form not mm. by co-opting the the forms of other religions, but uh, the mm. kind of principles or essence of them, maybe. Exactly. One of the things being said at the moment in my country, because a lot of young people uh, you know, don't follow Christianity anymore. A lot of them don't follow Judaism anymore. The Jewish ones they're being very attracted to indigenous religions um and they're very attracted to the aboriginal rituals and ceremonies and some of them want to get initiated into these um indigenous religions but the um the aboriginal people who are vocal about this on television and radio and newspapers are saying look we want appreciation, but we don't want appropriation. Mm -hmm. But that's, a, that's the, the two key words in my country at the moment. We do want the white fellas, as they call people like me, I'm a so-called white fella. Um, although I don't look very white, but I look pink to my eyes. But mm -hmm. um, we don't want you appropriating our religion, but we do want you appreciating it. And I think there's a very strong distinction between that. So there's a huge interest in indigenous religions in my country at the moment. And you can understand why, because at the time of a 
ecological, environmental crisis, mm-hmm. yeah. environmental catastrophe. The indigenous religions of the world are the ones with the answers. That, that. That's what I was thinking, you know, in terms of what can we learn from the other world religions, from, you know, the indigenous religions of the Americas and probably equally so Australian Aborigines, that yeah. uh, reverence for nature, nature yeah. as mother and father, and also yeah. initiation. Yes, absolutely. The young people of Australia are walking around saying, why aren't I getting initiated? Who's going to initiate me? Well, that's where Robert Bly comes in, you know, because Robert Bly says, join the men's movement, to get initiated that way. Um, you know, hug a tree, howl at the moon like a wolf. Uh, oh, come on. He said a lot better things than that. <laughs> I'm just parodying him. But um, <laughs> hug a big pine tree and feel yourself part of it. <laughs> but, you know, I think um, initiation and reverence for nature are the two big contributions that all Indigenous religions make. Uh, when I was in Canada uh, with Hillman in Montreal, I met some Canadian Indian people, and they were the two things they spoke about was initiation and nature. Mm. That's huge for them. Um, and then I said to them, it's the same in Australia, initiation and nature are the two big things. And, and you know, these are the things that, that we need. There's an old saying in Africa, if you don't initiate the boys, they burn down the village. I've been burn, down, burn down the village just to feel its warmth. Just to feel their own power, their ability to bound burn down something. There's so much anti-social feeling in young men worldwide at the moment because mm-hmm. society is not feeding their spirit. Well, that's what I mean. I mean, that's the way I've heard the proverb from Michael Mead is they burn it down just to feel its warmth. And what that speaks to to me is that they haven't felt the, um, the, the value from yes. the community because they haven't Absolutely. been, yeah. I've, I've been in Africa again this year. Um, I'm, I'm often in Africa. Um, I learn a lot about myself and African culture when I'm in Africa. That initiation in, is still hugely important in you know most tribal African cultures, less so in the urbanised uh, Africans. But uh, you know, Jung too learned a lot from Africa. He went on that expedition to Uganda and Kenya and uh, learnt a lot from that. Jungians today tend to be very critical of Jung, saying that he had white superiority complex and, and he wasn't very kind to the Africans. And, but you can't expect Jung to be everything. You know? We've got to be post-Jungian. You know? We've got to understand this old saying that he's a man of his time. <clears throat> of course he had a white superiority complex. Um, every white did in his day. Why should he be any different? And so we shouldn't feign or put on this kind of this, this disgust in Jung because he had a white superiority complex. I, mean, I think that's going too far. Mm. He learned a lot from Africa. 
And he learnt that initiation is very important. And he learnt that nature is very important. Yeah, so, that's, that's what I was going to say. Like when he talks about that encounter with uh, Mountain Lake and with yes. some of the African people that he met and yeah. their sun rituals and how central yeah. that was and how they got it. They got that relationship between the, the living yeah. symbol of the sun and the living God. He, he, he went there with a, a couple of mates, H.G. Baines from uh, London and some guy from America, and he headed straight for Mount Algonye, Mount Algonye, which is, I think, in, in Uganda, but it's also such a big mountain. I think it's also in Kenya. And he learned a lot from those people. And, um, and, and I think that's an important thing that uh, you know, he went, of course, to New Mexico, learned a lot from the Pueblo Indians in New Mexico. Did he go to Canada? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. No, and he didn't go to Australia either, see, because we don't count, you see. <laughs> but, my God, if he'd come here, there would have been so much here that would have interested in him. Mm -hmm. um, he did read Australian anthropology. He read um, the, the native tribes of Central Australia by Baldwin Spencer and Frank Gillen and learnt a lot from uh, about Australian uh, original, you know, First Nations people. Yeah, um, it, was, it was same with the um, Canadian Indigenous. He only uh, he only commented, as far as I know, on some early like Victorian anthropology of the Inuit people, yes, um, yes. and he talked a lot about their their kind of uh, everyday dream work that they would do and the idea of the their a concept of the soul and things like that. He did. He had a lot of respect for Indigenous. When I was in Africa this time, I met a lot of Islamic people. Um, in my ignorance, I hadn't realized how huge Islam is, not just in northern Africa, but also in central, eastern and western Africa as well. I was in West Africa this year, uh, in a country called Ghana, and it's hugely Islamic. You know? And one of the things I was impressed by was the daily rituals that you mentioned, the daily prayer rituals, you know, and people would have watches on their on their wrist that would buzz at a certain time, which meant that it was time to prayer, time mm -hmm. to go to, to pray to God, to Allah. And I thought, wow, you know, I, I really I really respect that. Imagine if the whole world was doing that, you know? Ooh, yeah. So long as you really are praying and not just massaging your ego, you know, like I, yeah. I'd look at some of the people praying, you know. Something I found a bit critical of in Africa is that a lot of people, I asked them why they were so religious when I come from a country which is essentially anti-religious. Um, they say, well, because if we pray hard to God, we will be rewarded by gifts. Yeah. See, I'm not too keen on that. I don't know how valuable that prayer is. Um, frankly, I, I said that to a couple of them. They were very annoyed with me. I, I said, I pray at times, you know, I pray every night before I go to sleep. And um, because that's what I was taught to do. 
And I ask God what I can do for God. No, I don't ask God what God can do for me. Um, and they, some of the people I spoke to thought that was pretty odd. So, you know, it, there are so many different kinds of prayer mm. and so many different kinds of religion. I feel that if you're praying for God because you want a new bicycle for Christmas, that's not prayer. Mm -hmm. that's, What's wish, that? that's Freudian. That's wish fulfillment. Yeah. Right. What what uh, what do you think is the benefit of prayer from a psychological perspective? Because one of the things that, you know, in, in the counseling work that I do is if the person seems like they might be receptive to it, I always mm. recommend prayer. Mm. Well, I, 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 on this question, I'm purely Jungian again. That is, prayer builds the ego self-axis. Right. That's that that egoic relationship to something greater than the yeah. ego. Yeah. I don't care who you pray, pray to, whether it's Allah, Buddha, um, whoever it is. It doesn't even matter to me. Um, the sun or the moon or the earth. Yeah, I don't care whether it's the tree in your back garden. It, it's still prayer. It's still valuable. It's got to be something bigger than you. Um, that's, not, that's where I'm a postmodern relativist. You know, the Catholics hate me saying stuff like that. <laughs> but I, I agree. I mean, if there is going to be a new universal religion, mm. I think the important thing is that principle of, of devotion to mm. something greater than yourself, something like the greater whole, however you yeah. conceptualize that, whatever represents that to you, as mm. long as the way the image that represents that opens your heart. Yes, exactly. And that's what's important. Um, but the people in Africa I spoke to were trying to assure me that Allah is the same as the Christian God. Funny how they feel a bit defensive about Islam when they talk to a Christian like me, or a so-called Christian. Actually, I'm a post-Christian, of course, just as I'm post-modern and also post-Jungian. I'm post-everything. <laughs> you know, I'm even post the posts. Um, so... It's very important for us to keep in touch with the spirit of the time, as you mentioned yeah. earlier. I think, um, you know, and that's why Jung's work has to be updated. Uh, it can't be just parroted off by, you know, card-carrying Jungians. Uh, it's not good. Mm. It's got to be alive. It's got to be. It's got to put the two big things at the top, which is the environment and race relations. You know, they're the two big political issues of our time, race relations and nature. And, um, you know, Jung was good on nature, but he wasn't terrific on race relations. Uh, <coughs> and, well, he, couldn't, um, he couldn't do it all, right? He can't do it all. Why should yeah. we expect him to? Yeah, uh, I love that. And one of the things that I think is really important, and maybe it comes from... Uh, you know, me being like a lay person or lay scholar of all this stuff. Um, but I think the democratization of, of depth psychology and Jung's ideas is really, really important. What do you mean by that? I mean, um, bringing it to the people, like out of the uh, analysis room and into the community. So one of the things that I've been doing is uh, doing these uh, inner journeying workshops 
where basically we go on a inner shamanic type journey and then we talk about it in you know using a lot of those principles from hillman and young and everybody pays 10 or 20 bucks that's what yeah. i mean by democratization rather than 10 or twenty thousand bucks yeah exactly twice a week uh at 200 I, bucks a pop at one stage i toyed with the idea of retraining as an analyst and i talked to a local analyst who lives near me and he said basically you've got to have enough money to buy a second house you know well that's not the democratization of your music well, and then all your clients are only going to be wealthy people, too. Yeah, with two houses as well. Yeah. All the people in Jungian analysis in Australia own a city house and a beach house. Hmm. Well, good for them. That's what we call up here white people problems. <laughs> first world, first world problems. You know, how many <coughs> black people are in analysis? Well, they can't afford it. Yeah. This American term, people of color, we don't use that here, but I quite enjoy that American term, people of color. Um, you know, people of color. Uh, when Robert Johnson was here giving lectures, there was one African guy in the room come from America, North Africa, uh, from the US, he came from New York, and Robert Johnson came up to him at the end. <laughs> this is poor robert showing his ignorance and he said to this guy i'm so pleased to have an australian aborigine in the room <laughs> we all just burst laughing including this guy himself he said no i'm from new york <laughs> i said robert i'm sorry you haven't got any aboriginal people in the room <laughs> you just yeah. got well, great illustration of uh, how much of a bubble a lot of Jungians live in. Yeah, you he know? thought that a person of color in Australia must be Aboriginal. It's not true. There are pretty much more Africans in Australia than there are Aboriginals in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, because the British massacred most of them, you know, massacred thousands hundreds of thousands of indigenous people got massacred by the british from eight from 1788 onwards it's atrocious and uh, that's why facing these racial issues is so hard because the guilt associated all with these all these massacres is enormous often too big for churches and schools and all of our institutions to deal with but um I, I agree with you about the democratization very much. Charge 20 bucks, you know, instead of uh, 350 bucks for a seminar. So people, normal people, come along. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel very strongly about this. I'm tired of writing books that only the upper middle class can afford to buy. I think you've found that on the internet, my books are too, too expensive. Too yeah. expensive, and that's such a shame because um, I think your books actually are quite accessible to the layperson, you know? Well, you have a very down-to-earth way of writing. Yeah, I try to because I had a, a blue-collar upbringing as well, like you. I'm from the working classes. My parents were contract cleaners, and they didn't finish high school, let alone university. So I have a, 
inbuilt in me enormous respect for ordinary workers. And I don't want to feel that I'm betraying them by writing books that cost you know, eight, 85 US dollars uh, mm. on, the, on the internet. And you, you know what I found too, uh, and this is one of the joys of me kind of tapping into that market by virtue of you know who I am, but mm. uh, the average Joe has the most extraordinary dreams. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's you right. Know, surprisingly, uh, yeah. Grand uh, dreams for people absolutely. living ordinary lives. Yeah. Trades people, you know, and, and people doing these types of jobs they often come to work thinking about last night's dream. You know, how are they going to get help by Jungian thinking? Well, they can't. <coughs> it's priced out of their range. And um, so I think Jung had the right idea toward the end of his life, you know, when he wrote Man and His Symbols, you know, which people disregard that as being sort of irrelevant. But it was important to him to write a book like that, uh, which was fairly simple, priced sensibly, and had a wide readership. Whereas who's going to read a book called Mysterium Conjunctionis. That's the one that came to mind, actually, <laughs> as like the exact opposite of man and his symbols. <laughs> well, the funny thing is he wrote them together, you know. Well, I mean, didn't uh, Marie-Louise von Franz really put man and his symbols together for him? She did. I mean, she, she was did. such a practical kind of lady and practical writer, it seems like, very direct. And Yeah, thank God for Marie-Louise von Franz because... Jung was purely stuck in his mythic mind, writing Mysterium from the Ancionis. But the modern mind, you know, and the social mind that might have had a sense of compassion for ordinary people was writing man and his symbols at the same time. And then, of course, I think it was Aniela Jaffe uh, who encouraged him to compose his memoirs, you know, uh, which became Memories, Dreams, Reflections. But with, uh, uh, without Aniela Yaffe, I don't think he would have written that book at all. Yeah, well, I think she really compiled that from his notes. Yeah, well, Sonu Shamdasani says she wrote it. Hmm. And I'm sure that that could be true. But she, she, she based a lot of her, her work on Jung's own record. I think those early chapters about his childhood and God shitting on the church. I think that was written in his own hand. But I think a lot of the rest of it was, uh, was uh, written uh, in consultation with Jung by Aniela Yaffe. So when we refer to that book in essays and books, I think we should refer to her as uh, at least a co-author, if not the author of that book. And I think we should stop calling it an autobiography and call it memoirs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I yeah. I think, I mean, that's a theme running throughout our whole discussion is the kind of forgotten women of, of these movements. Uh, yes. So the women who were really um, pivotal to, to Jung's yes. work and getting it to a wider audience and also the development of Hillman's psychology. I mean, nobody talks about Patricia Berry, but apparently she was... Oh. She was a huge influence on the development of uh, archetypal psychology. Huge influence. I mean, Hillman 
recognised what a huge influence she was. He also says Rafael Lopez Pedraza was a huge influence too, the guy that wrote the book called Hermes and His Children. But Jung didn't acknowledge women enough. And again, this is where he was a very patriarchal guy, you know. This idea of anima and animus wasn't his original thought. It was Sabina Spielrein's thought. Mm. And he thought, what a great idea. I'm going to run with that. The typology, a lot of the typology work came from Tony Wolfe. Mm. You know, it wasn't him. He developed it, but the seed ideas came from women. Uh, his own wife, Emma York, spent a huge number of years working on the Grail myth, <clears throat> which she didn't finish. But thanks to Marie-Louise von Franz, she came in at the end and finished it off for her. Otherwise, that book would have never been published. But I think that um, Jung field, you know, everyone mentions Jung and Eric Neumann, but no one talks about the importance of Sabina Spielrein or <coughs> Agnella Yaffe or Marie-Louise von Franz or Barbara Hanna and, and you know, uh, Esther Harding, all these women. This is my feminist side coming out again. I get really worked up about these things and everyone puts him on the pedestal and they don't recognise how he was indebted to the women around him who hugely influenced him, especially mm -hmm. Tony Wolfe. Um, <clears throat> I think it was Tony Wolfe that came up with the whole idea of types and then, of course, he ran with it and published Psychological Types in 1921. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, David, I really appreciate this chat. It's just, uh, it's felt like a gossip session between uh, a young man and an older man, you know, like I'm just kind of, hmm, give me some more morsels. I've just really enjoyed uh, hanging out with you. It's been very informal, but I like that. A, a chat between a young man and a young old man. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, when you said young, it sounded like young to me. Young, yeah, right. I get it. <laughs> anyway, sorry for going on too long. It's already passed by lunchtime. So. Yeah, no, I, I just, uh, like I said, it's been a lot of fun hanging out with you. And thanks for I, your time. I like Hillman. I like fighting. So if you want to put me up against somebody, <laughs> um, I, I'm all for it, you know. I'd be in the blue corner. They'll be in the red corner. What I would love to do would be to debate Jordan Peterson, but I'm not never going to get near him because he's too famous. Yeah, I'm Canadian and I can't even get his uh, phone number. You yeah, know. yeah, I can't either. He came he's more. Well, he's moved to the states now, so he's he's gone full uh, red pill. He's gone full right wing. You know, he's living in uh, like Alabama or something now. Oh. We came to Australia, and I was hoping the media would put us together, but it didn't. So he's he's too huge for for that. Yeah. But I I would be wanting to talk to him and show him how absolutely wrong his ideas are. Uh, well, you know, what, he'd write me know, off as a feminist. I know that. Yeah, what could be interesting. Um, because I don't even think you need a foil in front of you to let let it rip. But uh, I would actually really enjoy 
hearing from you like a critique of Jordan Peterson because um, I, I have my own critiques, but it me doesn't mean as much coming from me. Um, but I'd like to hear from you what you think about his uh, his biblical yeah. biblical exegesis and uh, mm -hmm. all of that sometime. Yeah, I, I don't know. Probably don't know as much about it as you do. You see, I get so wild and angry. Looking at his stuff, I ended up throwing it at the wall, you know. <laughs> and I have his current book called The Seven Rules to Living or something. It makes me so angry. Uh, that's the problem. You see, I can debate about Hillman because Hillman never made me angry. Uh, I can't debate sensibly about Jordan Peterson because the anger rises. And when my anger gets high, my rational thinking is lowered and I start swearing. You just start and, ranting, yeah. <laughs> ranting <laughs> and becoming too angry. And um, But uh, I, I don't I, – I, a lot of people have asked me to give public lectures on Jordan Peterson. But I've refused so far because, frankly, there's so much else. I want to talk about publicly in Jordan fucking Peterson. <laughs> okay, I hear you too, man. He gets enough airtime. <laughs> but uh, what I'm really interested in is kind of continuing a discussion about um, like where all this is headed, you know, um, what uh, religion can learn from psychology, what psychology learn can learn from religion, and, and what they can both learn from the spiritual but not religious movement, which I think is mm. really interesting and you've uh, yeah. touched on in lectures. So, uh, you know, I just really appreciate, um, sorry, you can hear the, the dogs are all over me right now, so I know my time is up, but uh, I really appreciate your uh, your kind of unguardedness and your openness just to just to have a chat. You know, mm. that that's rare, and I think maybe because you don't have a reputation as an analyst to uphold or any affiliations no, that no. you're just free to speak your mind, which is great. Yeah. Cause I you've done the work, rip. you know, I can let it rip. Yeah. Let it rip. <laughs> my, I, I, my patients won't get pissed off because I don't have any. <laughs> That's right. It's great. And you've retired from teaching, so you don't have to worry about pissing them off. I don't have to worry about pissing anyone off except my publisher. <laughs> okay thank you very much brian i appreciate uh, the um the opportunity to talk to you about so many things yeah it's been epic i'll have to go through and edit it maybe get it down to a <clears throat> more uh condensed version or something we'll see how it goes whatever feel free <laughs> to do whatever editing you like yeah cheers well go enjoy the rest of your day if you can maybe the sun will come out and warm you up a bit yeah, the sun's behind cloud at the moment because it's winter here. All right. Cheers, Brian. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. 
Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.